Welcome back to Three Keto Dudes. That's right. That's Richard Morris. Well, I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut. I went keto in 2016 to reverse diabetes and lose weight. And now it's my mission to spread the science of keto and to show the world how cooking is necessary for keto success. Oh, yeah. And pastrami sandwiches are still number one. Yes, we are still talking about pastrami sandwiches. Oh, my God. They're so good. (laughs) And I still haven't had one. What's up with that? I don't know, but my sauerkraut is getting low. So you need to come over. All right. Come on, guys. Focus. We've got a podcast. Yeah, that's true. Podcast, podcast, podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Carrie Brown, and I also live in Connecticut, just down the road from Carl. I'm a trained pastry chef who went keto to control and eventually eliminate symptoms from bipolar 2 disorder and depression. Mm. I no longer have to take any medications, and I no longer have any symptoms. It's my mission to show the world that keto food is entirely delicious, and with a great recipe, it can be tastier. And way healthier than any other kind of food. And who are you? I'm Richard Morris. <laughs> I'm a university student <laughs> studying biochemistry. And in the immortal words of Russell Case from Independence Day, Hey dudes, I'm back! <laughs> <laughs> Boy, howdy, is this going to be a show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's already Scotch o'clock here. It's so Scotch o'clock get, in Australia and it's coffee o'clock in <laughs> Connecticut, so... <laughs> Yes, and Richard's oh, already made me spit my coffee out once today. <laughs> well, you, if you know who Richard is, you know all about this show. It's we started it to document and uh, to document my journey and Richard's journey through ketosis, and then Carrie came on and it documents her getting rid of bipolar two disorder and depression and feeling good and and we love we're foodies and we don't give medical advice yada yada yada. And uh, let, we're not doctors. We're not doctors, so we're we're just keto dudes. Why, Richard? Can you give us the keto haiku, which I quoted the other day, which is really how to do keto? Sure, the keto haiku that is uh, when you're hungry, eat mostly fat, some protein, and when you full stop. It's been a while since I penned the keto haiku. I'm not a poet, but what's great about it is it really is succinctly describing how to do keto. I mean, there's a lot of nuance. It's not difficult. No. It's not really not difficult. And, you know, uh, the three of us have, have helped a lot of people uh, get into a ketogenic way of eating. Uh, yeah. There are tens of thousands of people listening to the podcast. There are tens of thousands of people on the ketogenic forum. But the important thing is that each of those people are uh, have an opportunity to help other people in their lives. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. It's really cool to just get random emails from people who say that, you know, just by listening to our podcast and following our advice, they've come off their insulin and lost weight. And it's just a wonderful thing. It is. It's, um, those are my favorite emails and posts and comments is, you know, the stories of people changing their lives and feeling better than they ever had. Maybe in some part we have contributed to that. So that's, yeah, it's very gratifying. Well, if you're just starting, you can listen to our starting keto show at start.2keto.com or just start listening from episode one. So, let's start with you, Carrie. What's new with you? Well, firstly, I wanted to give a shout out to Goldie757, who will be very, very pleased to hear that Richard Morris is on this episode because she, quote, likes Richard Morris a lot more than Carrie. Oh, to which, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> to which my response when I read it was, 
Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from oh, catching man. up on reviews, I've been having a migraine. That was that was a thing, but I'm I'm very grateful that I haven't had one for quite a while. So I didn't resent this one quite as much as ones where I was having them two or three times a week. So that was all good. I've been signing and shipping cookbooks out to people. I've been working on my YouTube channel. I've been recording, uh, videoing me making keto food things. So if you nice. if you want to see me making cranberry sauce, you can head over to my YouTube channel and watch the shenanigans over there. Awesome. Carrie, I've been thinking about your migraines. I think there's a certain crystal therapy that you might be interested in. (laughs) Don't get me started. (laughs) That's a little pretense, pretext of what's coming (laughs) a little bit later in the show. Just saying. I'm saying nothing at this point. (laughs) I'm um, I'm existing on on large quantities of my doll, but, you know. Anyway, what else? I have been – oh, I've been learning how to start fires. Really? Yes. Oh. I'm the world's newest fire starter. I had a – Oh, don't come to Australia (laughs) because we're we're pretty good at fire. I got some fire for you, Dave, mate. (laughs) That's that's not a fire. The entire eastern seaboard of Australia. That's a fire. (laughs) (laughs) I decided that since I live in a forest, it would be appropriate to get a wood-burning stove and switch from oil to wood. Wow. um, but starting fires has been more of a learning curve than I anticipated. Do you, you switched completely? Like you don't turn your oil furnace on anymore? Not even like to 50 degrees or something? Oh, it's set to 50, but yeah. the house hasn't actually got that low okay. since I got the wood burning stove in. So, um, the, the, yeah, the oil, the furnace hasn't come on in three weeks. Wow. Now. And so you're not Wait. worried about pipes freezing because the house hasn't got below 50. No, no, I mean the the basement. Do you have a basement? The basement actually does not. My basement, it's a daylight, but most of it is literally buried, and it, there's no heating okay. down there. But it doesn't. It's warmer than the rest of the house. Oh, okay, good. Well, great. So that's kind of cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Or actually, it's not cool, which is well, it's, cool. That's warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's warm, Carrie. Um. So fire starting. That's been my latest learning <laughs> curve, and then I'm been spending time with the masterclass. I did a holiday cooking masterclass and we do our classes on a Tuesday. So there was prep for that and talking about all the holiday things and listening to everybody's successful cooking exploits. So yeah, busy week as usual. Awesome. What about you, cousin Carl? What have you been up to? Well, uh, Tuesday night last week, um, Chef Robert and I did an event at RD86. Um, he sprang for all the food and we got a, you know, video camera and wanted to test the waters on a possible new YouTube show or video show where, uh, we talk about food, obviously, and recipes and cooking techniques that you can apply, uh, to low carb food. Um, it's just kind of this realization that a lot of people who go keto or just in general don't know basic cooking techniques, you know, 
And so uh, we were answering questions about time and temperature control, like because we did some sous vide. And so basic questions about how long, if you're going to do a steak, how long do you have to do it at a certain temperature? And people didn't know that you can cook meat lower than bacteria, the bacteria threshold, right? 165 for a longer period and still kill the bacteria. But it, you yeah, have to cook the it. pasteurization curve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people just don't know these things. So and that, we don't know a, what's going to come of it, but but we had a great time anyway. That and that's what I found too. This the my masterclass was a, a complete. I just like made it up one day and said, I wonder if this could be a thing. Mm. And but the feedback I've got from the people, some of whom I have, you know, I've seen them in the kitchen group, and and they cook and. And, and they still, they came to the masterclass and were like, wow, I didn't know that or I didn't know this. And mm. we've learned so much. And I, it yep. made me realize how many people don't have cooking skills or they are missing a lot of little tips and tricks that could make it all go a lot faster and smoother. And, and safer. Yeah, and, yeah. And safer and create less dishes. I'm a big fan of recipes that create less dishes yeah. um so yeah i'm so you and i are on this kind of parallel path here with right. with realizing that people need a lot more help with the actual cooking than just a recipe there's a general thing going on here and i know richie wants to comment the general thing that i've noticed is that people with knowledge usually and, and most often assume just naturally assume that everybody knows at least what you know right well, it's just, you know, for me, I mean, I've been cooking since I was three. So there's, it's like a lot of the things I do are just like breathing or getting yeah, out of bed. It's exactly. just, it's not that, that, I, you know, I, I think I'm better than anyone no, else. No, it's, I, it's, it's just normal behavior to me. And so I don't remember that not everybody knows that. And so I, I, I don't think about what right. other people might find helpful. And I have to do a much, much better job of, that well i think that's a human thing i've only been cooking since i was 48 and i'm 54 now so that's only six years wow so prior to that i had like four recipes sp spaghetti bolognese uh, a taco meal out of a box <laughs> a burrito meal out of a box <laughs> and something and a wrap out of a box wow and you know i so so for me uh i it was a late epiphany for me that um cooking and enjoying the food and learning to cook food that I enjoy uh, was an essential part of this. This is part of the reason why we started the recipes in the first place. Right. But I think you're right. I think Carrie's stuff is great because it's going to give people the foundations and it'll bring everybody up to the same level, which is awesome. Yeah. So well done. Well done, Carrie. Uh, it, it's been a real revelation to me. I mean, it was just something I just kind of tossed out and said, hey, do you think this would be fun? And, and and all these people joined and they were just like, oh, my goodness, I hate cooking, but I joined this because I, I need to do better. And there's they're having fun cooking, which was, you know, which was the, the cherry on the top of the cake was that not only are they they learning skills that mean they can feed their families better, but they're also having fun. I mean, they're actually like, I want to cook. I want to go in the kitchen, which wasn't a thing for them before. So, it, yeah, it's been super successful, and I'm, I'm really happy. I feel like I'm making an impact. That's so great. Well, Richard Morris, what is new with you, sir? <laughs> well, I've been, uh, I've been working a bit well. 
uh, not for an income. <laughs> I've been working for free, uh, but in exchange for uh, credits towards my degree, that's great. I'm working over the summer break. Uh, of course, summer here in Australia. Uh, I'm building a computer model of uh, common mutations in the noradrenaline, or otherwise known as the norepinephrine transporter, in cell membranes. And what we're, we're going to try and do, I'm working with a computational chemistry group at ANU, which is the university I go to. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to see if we can tell from DNA of patients who will benefit more from various inhibitors, drugs to treat depression. Mm -hmm. Some people do better with some uh, inhibitors and other people do well with other inhibitors. But the problem is if you give the person the wrong inhibitor and it doesn't work with them, there's a chance that they might injure themselves yeah. during the treatment. And so it's the goal is to try and reduce suicide during uh, de um, uh, uh, treatments for depression. So um, so essentially um, uh, the goal is personalised depression medication based on your DNA. So it's not really anything to do with keto, but it's kind of cool. It's kind of computing and kind of biochemistry. It's science! And, uh, um, it's science! science! And I've also decided... <laughs> science! <clears throat> I've also decided on my honours thesis, which is looking at how unsaturated fatty acids in the diet could change the structure of the inner mitochondrial membrane, and that could affect mitochondrial function, which could be related to many of the diseases of civilization. Wow. So if I can if I can do this, if I can build a model that shows that we can damage ourselves when we have uh, certain unsaturated fatty acids in the diet, um, that that will be fascinating. Yeah. That'll be that'll be novel information. So that. So that's my honest thesis. That's where I'm going to get started great, next man. year. That's super cool. But also, I mean, you, you said that, you know, about the depression thing and, and not really being keto, but there's so many people who report that their depression has either gone away completely or or sub significantly subsided as a result of just mm. removing the carbohydrates from your diet. So, you know, it's all yeah. so interconnected. Yeah. yeah, depression is a metabolic disease, I believe, but you know, and, and we change our metabolism when we go keto. So, uh, you know, there's uh, Georgia Eads got a lot of good work on this subject. And, you know, your own case, Carrie, is a, is a perfect example sure of that. Yeah. Love that Georgia Eade. Well, Richard, uh, it's good to have you back for this show. And um, I'm wondering if while you're here, you would like to read a piece of... Uh... <laughs> Officially outnumbered on this episode. It's like having my 12-year-old best friend back over to the house for peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> okay, so my mail is from uh, Dr. Liz Fraser, okay. and she is a local Canberra GP, and she got an article into Australian Doctor magazine, which is uh, uh, something that uh, is sent out to all the GPs in Australia. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to the Facebook group, uh, lo uh, Local Canberra. Um, low carb and uh, her link that talks about that. Um, but essentially the article goes the following. Uh, this is an article about reducing multimorbidity in metabolic syndrome. And she says, could a low carbohydrate, healthy fat diet approach be the key to helping this patient? Uh, Mary, a 58 year old woman in, on a disability pension has a complex multimorbidity encompassing bipolar disorder, PTSD, chronic back pain and morbid obesity. Uh, she presents to her GP complaining that she's unable to lose weight and her quality of life is poor. In her own words, Mary is ready to lie down and die. 
I mean, she takes multiple medications. She's an ex-smoker and consumes no alcohol. Despite dieting and regular exercise, Mary says she's concerned about progressing to diabetes and the need for more long-term medication. So during the examination, we find that she weighs 105 kilograms with a BMI of 43 kilograms per, per meter squared. So she's she's in the obese category. And her blood pressure is 160 over 90. Uh, so her blood tests reveal an elevated ALT uh, of 84. A normal is under 40. And this is a sign of, um, of, of liver disease. Her GGT is 53 um, uh, units per liter, which is should be under 30, and she has mildly elevated fasting glucose at six millimoles per liter, and normal is three to five point four. But she has a fasting insulin of 34 uh, milli IU uh, per liter, and it should be between four and ten. Uh, so, and she has an HbA1c of six. So her HbA1c of six says she's not yet um, into the diabetic range, but she's very close. Six point five, she'll be type two diabetic. But we can see from her insulin that she, that she is uh, sick. We can see from her liver enzymes that she's probably been sick for a long time. And um, we can see also the fasting glucose isn't elevated. The fasting glucose is normal. So glucose hasn't yet hit the point where it's starting to uh, show diabetes. But anyway, an, an abdominal ultrasound shows moderate fatty liver. Well, we, we know that because of the, the liver, the ALT and GGT. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary's diagnosed with metabolic syndrome as well as fatty liver and insulin resistance. Uh, And metabolic syndrome is the presence of three of the following risk factors uh, to constitute a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Elevated waist circumference, so your girth around your belly. Elevated triglycerides, reduced HDL, elevated blood pressure, elevated fasting glucose, uh, elevated triglycerides. And I'll bet if they did a lipid test, they would find out that she had that as well. So the management, uh, her GP talks to Mary about lifestyle measures, including a low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat approach to her diet. Mary agrees to try realistic dietary carbohydrate restriction. She's encouraged to choose healthy fats, such as avocado, nuts, cheese, butter, Mm. and olive oil, and to avoid seed oils and margarine. Uh, LCHF diets uh, generally recommend avoiding industrial seed oils, margarines, trans fats, and hydrogenated oils as those uh, used in deep fried and processed food. And since 2018, she has practiced time restricted eating. So, following this advice, Mary cuts back on pasta, potatoes, and bread. She finds an online program that supports dietary change. Her GP reviews her monthly and monitors metabolic biomarkers every mm. three months. And so Dr. Fraser goes on to uh, talk about, uh, in her discussion, she says, metabolic syndrome is a cluster of risk factors for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. Clinical presentation includes obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, glucose intolerance, and fatty liver. And these conditions share insulin resistance as the likely underlying pathophysiology. With more than 60% of Australian adults affected by weight or obesity, presentations of metabolic syndrome are common in general practice. Um, the diet and lifestyle modifications recommended as first-line management, uh, but in my experience, medication is the main safe treatment. Wait a minute. She, after going through all of that, she comes to the conclusion that this person needs medication? No. Oh. No, she doesn't. Right. What was the last sentence that you said? Uh, medications are the... General, yeah, so the general... Uh, 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 diet and lifestyle modifications are recommended as first-line okay. Management, but in my experience, medication is the mainstay oh, of treatment. Right. I'm sorry. So what she's saying is most doctors are going to put people on medication, but she's putting them on a lifestyle modification. Mm. So to cut a long story short, she says uh, that LCHF approaches may offer metabolic advantages by specifically targeting the hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance underlying the sy- syndrome. So the conclusion of this story 
is that over two years since she first saw this mm. patient, Mary, she's lost 26 mm. kilograms. That's so, what? 60 pounds, 60, yeah. Wow. Yes, 60 pounds. She's reduced her BMI from 43 to 33, so she's just in the overweight category. Um, her metabolic syndrome goes into remission without bariatric surgery or other additional medications. Her fasting glucose and HbA1c normalized to a level of 5.3 and 5.4% mm. respectively. Her, her liver function tests, lipid serum, insulin, and blood pressure also all normalize. Several factors contributed to her success, a dietary pattern that's both satisfying and lowers insulin, online education and support, a strong therapeutic alliance with a GP, regular supervised exercise, and her own determined commitment to improve her quality wow. of life. So the important thing here is that this is a patient case right. study going out to all general practitioners in Australia saying, you know all those problem patients that you have who just can't lose weight and they have all of these uh, symptoms of metabolic syndrome? This is the way to treat them. I mean, this is this is wonderful because once this gets out to doctors, um, they'll remember it. And when they get a patient come in say saying, you know, I went on a ketogenic diet, look at my mar blood markers, um, it'll it'll trigger a memory. I think so, that's great. Uh, you know, th this that's is awesome. Amazing. News. This, this is yeah, absolutely. It's, so that's it's, my mail. It's a great mail, and like you said, Richard, it's not the the story we've here we hear it all the time but the fact that it is framed in a gp's letter you know a case, a case study, study yeah absolutely that's the thing that's amazing well, and you know it it just strikes me that you know just you know what seems like 5 minutes ago we had gary fetke being banned and losing his medical absolutely. license or what happened right. and now we've got people sending stuff saying Hey doctors, here's how you do it. So yeah. that's a the, the, that's a flip flop. That's a one eighty, which is magical. Boy, how far we've come! Mm -hmm. I still haven't heard anybody who is going to my doctor who told me I was going to, you know, have a heart attack and die, and never saw anybody do what I did. I still haven't heard from anybody that she is recommending this. Yeah. But you're not going no, to her not, anymore. No. So you you tried to change your doctor, and when you I couldn't, changed my doctor, you changed your doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Richard, I, I'm so glad that you jumped at the chance to to come back on the show. I know it was last minute, but you do have uh, uh, a lot of stuff here in your show notes. So the floor is yours, sir. Sure. Well, I I want to talk a little bit about the evidence basis for ketogenic diets. Okay. Uh, the traditional complaints by all the peak bodies are that, you know, that in all of the studies that test low-carb diets versus high-carb diets, there's been no significant weight loss for low-carb diets. Um, and um, I, I, you're probably chomping at the bit to say, oh, wait a minute. No, no, <laughs> well, no. I, I... This, is, this is the traditional complaints. This is what the dietitians, this is what the dietitians and the diabetes associations and the heart associations will all tell you. Right. Um, they say that uh, that evidence shows that a low-sugar diet does not treat type 2 diabetes. Uh, they say that it's too difficult or hard or people don't tolerate it very well. Right. Uh, so, some say that low-carb diets are acidic and they may reduce bone mineralization. Um, they say there's no long-term study showing benefit of low-carb diets. And they also say it's, it's not within the macronutrient framework of the dietary guidelines. Yes. So... I want to talk a little bit about this evidence basis because um, 
there, there was a time when there wasn't very little evidence. It was very weak, small studies, small groups, um, poorly controlled. Uh, but one of the things that changed uh, about three years ago was a company called Verda Health got into the business. Yes. And if you don't know who Verda Health is, uh, the chief medical officer is Stephen Finney, Professor Stephen Finney, who's been on the show twice. Um, yep. And Jeff Volek is also um, uh, one of the medical officers. And and this company does uh, – an, they make an app that uh, people can use to um, to treat their diabetes. Right. And essentially what it does is it gives them dietary advice and they plug in their beta-hydroxybutyrate measurements, their glucose measurements, their weight, and uh, there are doctors at Verta who then, and nutritionists and dietitians who then give people advice on how to stick to a ketogenic diet. And so this study, the first one that came out was a 10-week study. This was uh, two years ago. It was, oh, three years ago, actually. In uh, uh, This is in Mackenzie et al. 2017. And uh, this study was uh, a 10-week trial. Uh, the treatment was 262 people, um, and uh, it was basically a ketogenic diet with compliance measured by beta-hydroxybutyrate measurements. And the results were, uh, in this in ten, just 10 weeks, um, this uh, cohort reduced, and this is, a, this is a cohort of type 2 diabetics. Everybody at the beginning was a type 2 diabetic. The average time since diagnosis was... 8.4 years. Okay. So you see a lot of cases, people re reverse their diabetes if they catch it early. These people lost that opportunity. This, these people are late into the picture. Got it. So for them to get any, be for them to get any uh, benefit is remarkable. Well, uh, their HbA1c reduced one point in 10 weeks. Mm. Um, and now, now I've, mine reduced a lot more than that, but you know this is the mean of a of a of a large group of two hundred and sixty two people with with varying issues. Also, and, ten and weeks isn't three months, remarkable. is it? Right, and so exactly you're you're in and so, in the HbA one C average. You have blood cells that are glycolyzed. Yes, right, and so uh, so essentially uh, reducing one percentage point in uh, ten weeks is pretty good. It's pretty good. Fifty six. Point eight had one or more medications reduced or eliminated. Wow! So that's the other thing. They're not only just uh, getting better at managing their glucose; they're doing it with less pharmaceuticals. And uh, the mean body mass reduction was seven percent. And um, the p value for that, you'll see a lot in science that um, that well done science where you're comparing a treatment versus a control. You see this thing called a p-value, and the p-value basically tells you what's the chance that what we're seeing is a random event. What's the chance that that you know we see that the they lose seven percent of body body weight? What's the chance that we just randomly picked up um, people who were just primed to lose weight? Well, so is this the margin of error? No, it's a, it, it it it's it's a marker of <clears throat> your chance of making a type one error. And essentially, it's a one in 1,000 chance that this was a random observation. So when you okay. see a p-value of less than 0.001, it means there is a one in 1,000 chance that what, you, what you're looking at uh, was a random error and a 999 in 1,000 chance that what you okay. were seeing was from the treatment. So it's Got essentially it. verifying that, that it's a statistical way to, to, to know that, you're, that you're, your observation is significant. Have, I have a Got question. It. Yeah. Is there a, when you say long term, 
Is there a definition for what constitutes long term? Is it one year, four years, ten years? Is there a kind of a a a accepted definition of what long term is in terms of time? Yeah, long term is essentially twenty four months, so two years. Okay. So a two year study is in dietary. Uh, studies is considered to be a long-term evidence. Okay, so when everyone talks um, about long-term, it's two or more years. That's right. Okay, yeah. thank you. And we'll get to that because we're going to get to the two-year study because they also went for they, the same group went on for two years. So, um, so any, the other thing is that that the other thing that they determined in ten weeks is that there was no statistical difference between the remote or in-person advice. So they had this app that people mm. were using to to manage their ketogenic diet, and then a small group instead of giving them the app, they had them come in to talk to a nutritionist or a doctor in in the uh, facility, and it was Dr. Halberg was doing it. So they're testing. Does the app work as well as yeah. in-person treatment? and there was no difference between them. That's great. So after 10 weeks, everyone got the app because it was just as functional. And here's the thing about using doing it in an app. It's scalable. Yeah. So one doctor can only talk to 10,000 people in a year, mm. but an app can potentially talk to billions. And so that's the important thing about the 10-week study. Okay, so they kept doing this same group, uh, 262 people, um, and they went on for one year. And this time they, ha they had a, a group uh, of a, a control group who were doing the usual care. The usual care is the traditional diabetes advice, you know, low-calorie diet, um, plenty of carbohydrates, limit, limit your fats, limit the amount of energy coming in, do some exercise, stop drinking, stop smoking, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And uh, so from the one-year study onwards, all of the p-values will tell us what the diff whether whether there was a significant difference between the usual, between the intervention, which is the, the ketogenic app, or uh, the, the control. And so they had a further 1.3% drop in HbA1c, and the p-value for that, now remember the p-value before was 0.001, and that was a 1 in 1,000 uh, chance uh, that, you, that that was a random event. The p-value for that additional drop in HbA1c is 10 to the minus 16. Whoa. That's so it's a 1 in 10 to the 16 chance. How many zeros <laughs> so past the decimal point is that? 16. 16 zeros. <laughs> 16 zeros. So this is, um, so, so a million is six zeros, a billion is nine zeros. Right. A trillion is 12 zeros. Okay. Okay. So it's a thousand trillion. So it's one in a thousand trillion chance that what they were observing is a random event. That's what you call, that, that's so significant. It's, that's, it's not fun. That's ridiculous. So. Yeah. So, so, uh, so you know, the, the, this is this is significant data. Um, yeah, insulin therapy was reduced or eliminated in ninety four percent of patients. So these are type two diabetics with an average time since diagnosis of eight point four years. Who are a whole bunch of them are on insulin, and ninety four percent of them were able to get off or reduce their insulin and still get the benefits. Richard, do you remember when we interviewed? I can't remember who it was. Was it? Cassie Ewers, maybe, who okay. um, who accidentally left her insulin someplace. Yes, I remember that. She was like one of our, one of our first guests. Yeah, and uh, and then she just stopped taking it because she didn't have any, and yeah. the, her insurer wouldn't her insurer let her buy any more. Wouldn't let her buy any more, and 
And what ended up happening was she found out she didn't need it. And it actually was being a problem. It was causing problems. So, she, yeah. So, then she just stopped. I should mention nobody- Nobody do that. No, please. don't do that. Nobody out there do that. No, it wasn't. If accident. you're going to go to on a low carb diet and you're on insulin, get talk to your doctor talk about your doctor. that and and get them to help you titrate the insulin dose down and so that you yeah, it's very take important it down that, gradually. So yeah, she, she ran it. She she went. She was running at a hundred kilometer, hundred mile an hour into a brick wall, right? And was just lucky enough she had a, enough leap to be able to get over it. Yeah. So, it was wonderful, but it. But I remember an example of but, this. But I remember yeah. that feeling that we had when we talked to her was like, "Oh my god, you know, I can't believe yeah. that this happened." Like you're getting mm. off insulin. That was the first time yeah. I had even heard of somebody getting off mm. insulin as a type two diabetic, and now yeah. it seems like ninety four percent of people. It, it's remarkable. So. Um, the other thing about it is in the first year study uh, is that um, uh, their triglycerides went down by 25%. Mm. And the p-value for that is um, one in uh, – the p-value for that is 10 to the minus 16. Again, mm. another big number. Uh, what, what did we say? 1,000 trillion. Um, their HDL went up. On, uh, the mean HDL increase was 18%. Uh, which again, p value is uh, uh, 10 to the minus 16. Their LDL went up 10%. Uh, and the p value for that is 5.1 times 10 to the minus 5. So that's significant. The, the, L, the rise in LDL was significant. Mm. Um, and we'll see in another study why that is. But the, the important thing for me in this study really is um, not just the reducing insulin, but they had 83% adherence. So that means you've taken a group of 262 people and you've put them on a, on a, on a low-carb diet and 83% of them loved it and their beta-hydroxybutate was showing that they were thriving on this diet. I don't think That's you're going to get amazing. that from Weight Watchers. I mean, Weight Watchers adherence is – I mean, how many people are still doing Weight Watchers yeah, after people, a year? People go through those programs and then they stop 10, and then they go maybe through 5%. again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So adherence is the big thing. And this this is really flying in the face of the argument by dietitians that it's difficult to do. Right. People don't like it. They don't tolerate it very well. Um, and, uh, you know, this this really uh, uh, shows in, in people who are really quite diabetic. Yeah. So the other study, uh, there's two other studies that uh, Verda have done. They've done a bunch of studies with the same cohort, and it's just wonderful stuff. Right. But the first is the cardiovascular study. This is Bamperi et al. in 2018. And uh, it, same cohort, 262 people, 87 controls. And they showed that uh, the LDLP um, – uh, uh, dropped by 4.9%. Um, uh, their small LDL, p uh, small LDL particles uh, dropped by 20%, and the p-value for that is uh, 1.2 times 10 to the minus 12, so 1 in 100, in 100 billion <laughs> chance that that was a random event. Wow. Um, their triglycerides to HDL ratio dropped by 29.1%, uh, and the p-value th for there was uh, um, uh, 10 to the minus 16. Uh, they saw a reduction in blood pressure. Again, uh, p-value is, in this case, 10 to the minus 7. So mm. um, what's that? 10 million, 1 in 10 million chance that that was a random event. 11.4% mm. uh, were off hypertension meds, uh, medication. Um, and the p-value there was um, – let me just say that all of these – the p-values yeah. are extremely low, which means it's extremely significant. Right. 
Um, and so anyway, um, and the 10-year ASCVD score, which is a score of the chance of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years, um, dropped by 11.9%. Wow. So, so, and this is cardiologists doing this study on, wow. on the blood work for these people. So, so that's really uh, telling you why uh, people on a high-fat ketogenic diet get healthier with respect to cardiovascular markers while also improving diabetes uh, status. And if, in those for whom LDL increased, the pattern was shifted from an atherogenic pattern B to a small, uh, the, you know, the small dense LDL mm. to a non-atherogenic pattern A. So, so even if your LDL went up, it was light and fluffy. It wasn't small and dense. Right. So it, it shifted from an atherogenic to a non-atherogenic And uh, that is profile. significant, so, as we've talked about many times on the show. Yeah. That's what you want. Those mm. uh, light, fluffy, and, you know, they're microscopic. You, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, just, the larger particles are, are not dangerous. Just listening to you talking about all of these markers and all of these things, and I'm just sitting here thinking, and it's just removing carbohydrates yeah. from your diet. Like, it's, that's it. Exactly. It, that's it. Exactly. And, and, and all I mean, of that that nuances, you've just said. But, right, but, yeah. but all that you've just said – like the vast majority of all of that is literally just stop eating. Replace the sugar and starch in your diet with healthy right. fats. It it's kind of magical, and it's also it kind of mind blowing that with all that you've just told us, every doctor on earth isn't like going stop eating carbohydrates. It's just isn't right. Right, it's, it's just it's, incredible. Yeah, it is. It's it really is. We have one article in this. It is. Well, we have one article in Australia Doctor Magazine, so so it's starting to happen. But the last study I want to talk about, Carrie asked about what is a long term dietary study. It's two years, and this is a two year study, same cohort, and this is in Atheronanian et al. in twenty nineteen, and their results showed that spine bone density was unchanged, and this is showing light to the complaint that. Ketogenic diets are full of meat, so therefore they're acidic, and therefore you're going to mm. demineralize your bones. Okay, I have another question. After two years, yeah. So, yes. do you think, or do they know, or has anyone studied whether that is in some part because people who lose a lot of weight are then able to exercise where they weren't able to exercise before? Or so one are they they are now able to exercise and two they have a lot more interest in exercise. Is there like the the fact that the bones don't change or don't have any loss any net, net loss? There you go. That's the word loss. Yeah. Has anyone looked at that? They didn't tease it out. So uh, when you do any weight bearing exercise um, that that basically stretches the muscle that's attached to the bone, the bone gets stronger. So, you know, doing exercise makes your bone stronger. But what this is saying is that there was no evidence of loss. Right, yeah, I just I just wondered if 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 the people that they they that were on the long term, if there was any if they looked at like any exercise part or not. I was just curious. I, I I'm not aware of it, but uh, the uh, the I, I think the important thing really is that it, it it shows light of the fact that 
you know, these diets are acidic and, and there's something inherently wrong with an all-bacon diet. You know, dietitians are absolutely convinced it's got to be bad for you. <laughs> and so th- I think that was a spurious complaint when they say it's acidic. I think there's people who don't understand how acid and, acids and bases are uh, neutralised and, and buffered in the human body. But anyway. <laughs> I think you're going to get more damage to your bones from Diet Coke. You know, the phosphoric acid <laughs> in the in cola. I, yeah, well, yeah. well, you, you got, your stomach has uh, got a, a pH of one. It's hydrochloric acid in there. And then you buffer your acids in your body by breathing faster or slower. So, you know, you could, you could, drink, you could drink acids like phosphoric acid or acetic acid or citric acid and your body will be just fine. It'll just buffer them by making you breathe more or less. <laughs> Spoken by a Diet Coke drinker. (laughs) And a student of computational chemistry. So (laughs) uh, the other thing that that I liked about the two-year study, other than it was a two-year study, so it shows light of the fact there's no long-term studies. That, by definition, is a Mm, long-term study. So, yeah. The other thing I like was 53.5% of people who are, now remember this, everyone's a type 2 diabetic walking in the door, 8.4 years average time since diagnosis, which means some people were probably just diagnosed last week and some people have been diagnosed 16 years ago. So we're talking about significantly diabetic people. 53.5% of these people saw a reversal of type 2 diabetes. That means that their diabetic symptoms and the diabetic markers are going backwards. And 17.6 saw remission of diabetes, which means they were (laughs) no longer diabetic after the two years. And this is uh, the p-value for that compared to the control is 0.0012, which is that that's a a larger p-value than we've been seeing, but that's a one in 8,000 chance that that was a random event. That's a 7,999 7, in 8,000 8, chance that, that, that what we're seeing in that event was from the intervention. That's, that's so amazing. I, I'm, I'm going to call it. <laughs> What's biologically significant is 0.05. So that's a 1 in 20 chance. So everything above a 1 in 20 chance is considered biologically significant. This is extremely very significant. Yeah, well, what is that? I mean, we have a doctor publishing a case study. When is the rest of the world going to uh, embrace the science? And have they? They haven't. And one of the problems is that, um, uh, you know, you want to know why don't we put everybody on uh, every type 2 diabetic Mm. on a ketogenic diet? That was Carrie's question. Isn't it obvious? I mean, you know, all this math that shows us that it's highly unlikely that we're looking at random events and looking at real data. why doesn't everybody do it? One of the problems is the dietary guidelines mandate a minimum of 45% of calories from carbohydrates. Now, that's the U.S. dietary guidelines from so, which the rest of the the Western world, I guess, takes its marching orders. This, I mean, why would we spend a billion dollars on a study in Australia when the right. Americans have just done it for us? So we just use your stuff. So, I mean, the, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in, uh, in 2010, this is the USDA, um, uh, they, have, they basically said that, the, uh, that adults should consume 45 to 65% of their total calories mm. from carbohydrates. For, so for them, a low-carbohydrate diet is 45% of your calories from carbohydrates. If you're, earning a, you know, you, you're taking in 3,000 mm. calories a day, um, if, if almost half of those, 1,500 calories-ish, 
uh, from carbohydrates and there's four four calories per gram, you're talking about, uh, what, 400 grams of carbs a day. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. And you, wow. and they go up from there. So it, it's impossible for them to countenance a ketogenic diet because it exists outside the boundaries for the guidelines. So this is why we need to spend uh, effort and time helping Nina Teichel with her, with her um, coalition because their work that she's trying to work on the dietary guidelines. And if we can get the US dietary guidelines to change, then that'll change in England, it'll change in Canada, it'll change in Australia. And those dietary guidelines are important here in the US because all of the government agencies that have anything to do with serving food – in, yeah. And all of the institutions, like hospitals, the military, schools, school schools. lunches would be changed. Boom. Snap. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of people. Well, you know, right. the, the food stamps program, snap. I mean, it's a lot of people. So, you know, it's just um, – and it's the same mm. in Australia. So, um, you know, we can change that. So that's why, that's why to answer Carrie's question in, the, in a long-winded way, that's why we ha things haven't changed because the dietary guidelines, it's yeah. outside of the range of the dietary guidelines. And there is a momentum involved in, in, in all of the evidence bases that's been found to support the dietary guidelines. Some of it very weak, but, you know, it, um, uh, the thing is that there is a space between a ketogenic diet and 45% through which things it's not a linear transition between those things and so you really you can't sort of say well how about we try a 20 percent carbohydrate diet it's not going to work as well as a ketogenic diet because as soon as you get into a, a state where you're burning fat for energy your insulin is low enough to burn fat for energy and you you know that by the fact that you're making ketones um everything changes your entire yep. metabolic right. makeup changes so why a ketogenic diet is important? Well, I think the first thing is type two diabetes. We can see with all all this stuff that that you know that uh, type two diabetes is treated by a ketogenic diet. If only we could get the dietary guidelines to allow us to do it. Um, you know, and the thing is that you know the problem is that our healthcare system is tr in trouble, and we all pay for that. Even if you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a nation with socialized medicine or if you're in a nation with. Uh, with uh, fully unsocial medicine, um, antisocial, <laughs> we're all going to pay for it. Uh, diabetics and non-diabetics, antisocial medicine. <laughs> anti medicine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, you know, if you look at the economic cost of diabetes in the US in 2017, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes um, of a of a study that does this that looked into this, uh, the total estimated cost of diagnosed diabetes in 2017 is 327 billion dollars. Wow. You know, um, uh, $237 billion is direct medical costs. So that's dealing with, with chopping people's legs off, um, get, getting them prostheses, um, uh, dealing with kidney, kidney transplants and liver yeah. transplants and, uh, you know, uh, diabetic retinopathy. Is, you know, people have gone blind because they've got diabetes. This is the cost of treating all of those. And... Um, uh, Ninety billion is in reduced productivity, so this is you know um, uh, three point three billion dollars in absenteeism because somebody can't come in because wow. they've slipped into a diabetic coma or they just you know they 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 can't they can't get out of bed or you know uh, twenty six point seven billion dollars in redu reduced productivity because they're on the job but they've got the, you know their 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 heads in in uh, in la la land and they you know. Um, that you've got uh, $37.5 billion in inability to work because of diabetes and $19.9 .9 billion of lost productivity due to 
and this is a killer statistic, 277,000 premature deaths. This is people dying early and, and no longer in the workforce, no longer paying taxes, so the rest of us have to pay more taxes because we have fewer taxpayers in the system productive and and so you know it it doesn't matter whether you 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 know you're you're a hardcore capitalist or you're a hardcore socialist you still you're still going to be screwed unless we do something about diabetes so you know this is uh, uh, let's see care for people with diagnosed diabetes accounts for one in four health dollars in the US that's crazy 25% of the Isn't budget it? goes for diabetes yeah and and that's not even and that's not even linking diabetes with uh heart disease which is you know heart right. disease is probably another 25 percent, but you know it's not considered to be part of the complexity yet of, of diabetes problems so uh for an individual so you know it, it's not it's it's for us as a community it's not just for individuals for an individual they're going to spend about ninety six hundred dollars a year that's going to be their cost for their treatment of their diabetes for the for the i mean you become diabetic in your 30s as people are doing these days i became di mm. i became pre-diabetic at 38 and full-on type 2 at 48 hopefully i live you know into my 70s maybe 80s and that's a that's almost ten thousand dollars a year that's a lot of money piling up you know uh, and after adjusting for inflation the economic cost of diabetes increased from 2012 to 2017 by 26%. So it's not it's not static. It's not getting smaller. It's growing. D grew by a quarter wow. in five years. You know, so this is why, uh, you know, if you, you might say, well, you know, this is a wealthy country. It's a disease of wealthy, of having too much food. Um, you know, it's, it's our own, I guess, you know, our own wealth that's causing us to have this disease. I'm going to link to a study from China, and that shows that 56.4 million people of working age in China, or roughly 7.1% of working, working people, wow. have type 2 diabetes. Uh, 4.1 million more deaths. Um, 22.7 million additional years of life lost. Um, and they've, this study looked into the total cost to the economy of China, and that is uh, $2.7 trillion in lost GDP of the nation. Wow. So, I mean, this is not something that, it's not some guy down the road who's, who's overeating himself into an early grave. Right. You know, this is affecting taxpayers. It's affecting people who trade in the world world economy. It's you know, China mm. goes down. We're all stuffed. So you know, that's that's uh, so so. You know, I I don't mean to be <laughs> the uh, grim reaper here, but you know, well, it's grim. It's I, a big issue. The doctors never yeah. tell you the bad the the end game for diabetes. Yeah. Well, they don't know some of it. I mean, well, they you know, you know my doctor just asked, "Are your toes tingling?" You know. Right. What does that mean? You know, what's it means you're about to, well, it means down the road you could lose one, but they didn't, she never said that. You know? Right. That's incredible. Mm. So, uh, just to just to finish off my list of research, I also looked into Australia and the links will be in the notes. Uh, the annual direct per person cost, uh, for a regular person with normal glucose tolerance is, is so we we spend roughly eight, uh, $1,898. Per capita uh, in medical expenses for those who have uh, diabetes, it's forty three ninety. Now that's a lot less than it, somebody in the US, but it's but more than twice as much. Healthcare is a lot more expensive than if ours. you don't have diabetes. 
Yeah. It's more than twice as much as a normal person. So, you know, uh, the total annual cost for Australians over 30 was uh, uh, $10.6 billion. 4.4 is direct and, and costs and $6.2 billion is in government subsidies. Um, the, the summary for this paper was a classic line. They said the excess cost of diabetes to individuals and government is substantial and is greater in those with complications. Costs could potentially be reduced by preventing the dis- development of diabetes or its complications. A da. <laughs> yes. What a great idea. Exactly. <laughs> if hey hey guys 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 listen to this. If we could just prevent diabetes, maybe yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and standing athwart this is the Dietitians Association of Australia that says you can't go below 45% calories uh, from carbohydrate. Absolutely crazy. You, you know, we, 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 we're stuffed. We, there's, no, there's no way we can get through this. I mean, y- you and I found a way personally and, um, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry to leave Carrie out, but, but I'm talking about diabetes only here. I'm going to get into other things, but, um, you know, it's uh, – the only way to get out of this, well, I'll tell you how we're going to get Bacon out of this eggs. later on. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot <laughs> of it. <laughs> so um, I, I just want to mention, uh, talk a little bit about socialised healthcare here. And I know it's a hot button issue uh, in the States. And uh, um, and you've seen the difference between so- what somebody pays in the US for uh, healthcare and what somebody in Australia, for example, pays in, in healthcare. Or um, anywhere else in the world. Or England. Or England, yeah. But but it, it's not so much the out-of-pocket payments. It's not so much that Carl has to pay more dollars than I have to pay. Uh, Carl's treatment is twice as expensive as my treatment. Sometimes 10 times more. And it's not significantly better. In some, well, in, exactly, in the case with the broken glass, yeah. um, you know, in your foot yeah. that time, yeah. So um, I looked into this. Um, so this whole thing about socialism, people, people freak out about socialism. Both America and Australia are socialists in, in some industries and not socialists in other industries. Sure. And all you're, all you're really saying is the government taxes the people and uses that tax money to do things that everybody benefits from, like roads, schools, education, right. blah, blah, blah. We are socialized. Perfect example. I mean, I mean, you know, if you don't like socialism, then um, try living somewhere where all the roads are toll roads, yeah. for example. Yeah. You know, um, a, a, a fire, fire brigades is another good example. Do you know, do you know who the wealthiest man ever uh, in the history of, uh, of the world was? No. He was, he was actually, he was a character in the movie Spartacus. Uh, he was played by Laurence Olivier. Uh, and he was a guy known as uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus. And he's where the saying, Richest Crassus, comes from. I didn't and, know either uh, of those things. It, it, wow. It, no, so he was worth uh, 200 million sesterces. His personal income was roughly the size of the Roman treasury. So that gives you an idea of, I mean, Bill Gates is nowhere near the size of the US treasury. Right. Bill Gates is not worth $13 trillion or 14 or whatever, $15 trillion or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, so how did he get his money? He was a fireman. He, he owned the fire brigade in Rome. And <laughs> what he used to do, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a state-run uh, uh, entity. It was a private enterprise entity. And the way it would work is if your neighbor's house was on fire, he would approach you and say, um, I think you're worth this amount of money and this is what I'm going to charge you to stop that fire from getting to your house. Jeez, nice, nice deal if you can get it. That's how you become extremely that's wealthy. Extortion, really? So that's, 
it it is, but it but but it's but it it, it that that is that is that's ha- capitalism. Uh, that is ha- that's capitalism more naked. Yeah, at its finest. So there's lots of things like roads and um, fire brigade that you don't want to become you, you, that you want to be socialist. You you want them to be run by the, you want the state to own the the means of production. Right. Another good example is um, and that's the definition of socialism when when the state owns the means of production. Um, another good example is the military. You don't want private armies with nukes, for right. example, and tanks. I mean, it's okay for the for a, a militia group to carry guns, but you don't want them to. You don't want the means of production for the military complex to be to be privatized. Private. Yeah. You want that to you privatized. You want it to be. You want it to, you want the means of production to be owned by the state, and then maybe you know private industries like Boeing and and what have you, Blackwater and what have you, all all you know. Contracting for mm-hmm. the for the state, but so so socialism itself, as it as it stands, is not necessarily a bad thing. So so the question is um, healthcare. Uh, I'll give you an example of Australia. We don't really have. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it's kind of it's universal healthcare. So uh, in Australia, the way it works, it's not free. So we pay for our healthcare. All Australian citizens share the cost of of healthcare of fundamental healthcare. Through taxes, what we do is we um, the same way we pay for roads, firemen, and the military. And uh, but in the case of healthcare, what we do is we pay an extra ten percent levy on top of our income tax. So if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, you pay two thousand dollars into this levy, and so that pays for all of our all of our healthcare. And you saw that the average for a normal person is under under two thousand dollars. So you know it it, it 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 that pays for the most of the public healthcare, which gets you into a public ward, it gets your kids under eighteen dental mm. care, you know, it gets you into ambulances won't not pick you up if you if you're ill on the side of the road, gets you to a GP. Um, there's still queues, and you still you have to go to a public ward with a bunch of other people, you know. But um, for the most part, that's 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 the it's like a safety net. It's like the bare minimum. And, and here we can buy private health insurance. So I, I buy private health insurance for, I think it's about 250 bucks a month for two people. And that gets me my choice of specialist. It gets me into a private ward. It gets me dental care, you know, all of the extras on top. So, you know, it's not a lot of money. Um, people freak out about the fact that, you know, socialised medicine um, is going to um, is going to cost everybody a lot of money but in fact it ends up you with a single pay you end up s- s- spending less and one of the reasons we that this is kind of important um is because the cost of healthcare. if di- if this diabetes tsunami hits us um and we are paying like 750 dollars for an aspirin in an emergency room that those kind of fees um we're doubly screwed triply screwed so you know that this is this is this is why i kind of went on a little rant about uh, about socialism. But I also think that, you know, in England, one of the reasons why it worked so well was because the the hospitals were cost centers, not profit centers. Yeah. So doctors are not ordering tests that you don't need. Mm. I, I've had more blood tests. I think I'd been here two years and I'd had more blood tests in that two years in the US in the whole rest of my life in England. Because here, like it's like you, if you see someone, that's what pays your mortgage. If you're a part of the medical profession here, right? Mm-hmm. You have to, to to do stuff to get paid. But it's not like that in England or Australia. Is that they they are 
literally paid to make you better. Right. Whereas in America, it doesn't feel like they're paid to make you better. It feels like they're, they're the paid <laughs> if you come to see them when you're sick. Right. So they need people to be at a certain level of sickness so they'll keep coming in, whereas the reverse is true in England. They actually don't want to see they you. They don't want to see you again. <laughs> They don't want to see you again, so they're they're more inclined to help you get better because you'll just work to them. They're going to get paid anyway. You'll just work to them. So it feels like there's far more incentive to actually find out and and heal you in in other countries. That's the word incentive. I think that's definitely true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, Australia isn't all public. It's got the private system as well. So a doctor can say, can can um, say, oh, look, I want to spend fifty percent of my time in the public ward, um, you know, and I've got a guaranteed income for you know fifty percent of my time, and the other fifty percent of my time is going to be all private work. And doctors can can still become fabulously wealthy, not as wealthy as Crassus, but you know. That dude was a fire. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. And, and, and but, here's the yeah, thing. They, they can still become fabulously wealthy. And here's the thing, right? There's no incentive for any of these big institutions to change because they're raking in the cash. Drug companies raking in right. the cash. Insurance companies raking in the cash. Hospitals. It seems like doctors are the only ones that aren't raking in the doctors, cash. But yeah, exactly. But, I mean, if you were those organizations and you have sharehold, you have a fiduciary uh, a duty to your shareholders to maximize wealth, mm. what do you do? You you send lobbyists out to talk about how awful mm. socialism is and, you know, how, you know, if if, if, if we become socialists, it's the next right. step is communism and, and look how that did with <laughs> Venezuela. You know, th- this is all, this is, this is how a lobbyist would, would pitch why, yeah. why we should keep yeah. the, the existing system. But as, I, as I've already shown you, the diabetes epidemic is going to overwhelm the system. It's going to take us out if we don't. And I don't think getting every. I don't think we're going to be able to get everyone on a ketogenic diet quickly enough. Is is my concern. If you look at life expectancy between, uh, say, Australia, US, Ca- uh, Canada, and Great Britain, okay. Um, if you look at that, the point where we introduced our Medicare was the point where we start. Australia started to diverge from 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 the US. Uh, prior to that point, the US um, had a longer longer lifespan than Australia. Uh, currently, right now, an Australian man on average will live 80 years and a woman 84 years. An American man on average lives 76 years and a woman 81 years. So, you know, that that that's the cost of delaying treatment. Uh, part of this problem is the fact that, you know, if you're uninsured or underinsured or you have an insurer that's just really difficult to deal with, um, you have a symptom, you're going to take time before you get a diagnosis because you're going to put up with it for as long as you can because, you know, my insurance is just rubbish. And then when you finally absolutely have to seek seek a diagnosis, you know, your disease progression has, has progressed so far that it's more expensive to deal with and then the time between diagnosis and treatment is longer. And so all of that ends up impacting lifespan. And so, you know, we're talking about four years difference. I mean, if, if, if you know, I put personally, if the US wants to increase their lifespan by four years, they can consider that as a, as a, as a way of, um, of, of increasing the health of the nation. I looked also at, and I'll put links in the show notes for this, the total cost per capita. So this is how much money that Australia spends 
um, on the average person that 4708 this is in 2016 $4,708 per capita in healthcare dollars and the US is $9,892 per capita. And that is for diabetes? No, that's for all health. That's for all health. Oh, for all health. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, the, the, the t- and this was, this was specifically in 2016. I think that other one was um, 2015. Okay. Uh, or it might have been. Anyway, it was a different year. This is a different study. This is, well, this is a different study. So it's, it's uh, yeah, so it's a horse. This is a horses for horses comparison between uh, between countries by um, health, total okay. healthcare expenditure. And the, the reason it's, it's gone up is obviously because, you know, it goes through multiple mouths before it gets to the right. supplier of the product. So, um, but the uh, quality of healthcare, you'd think, well, you know, if the US is paying double the amount of health, uh, healthcare dollars, their quality of healthcare should be twice as good. Um, de- in uh, so if deaths per one hundred hospital admissions for a heart attack in Australia it's four point four deaths per hundred, in the US it's five point five, so the quality is not better for the extra money that's being paid. Now there's some things like ischemic stroke where the US is much better than Australia. Um, colorectal cancer, for example, they're about the same. Five year survival rate for colorectal cancer in Australia is sixty six point two, and the US is sixty two point seven. So okay, you know, that, that's that's close enough. But uh, so it's not a significantly it, it's not a significant significantly better healthcare. The point is that you don't right. always get what you pay for when you've got a lot of companies trying to maximise their profits between a consumer who must purchase a service and a provider, and that's. You know. Anyway, so I'll get off my rant about uh, socialized well, yeah, medicine. It's, 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 uh, but I think it's, it's good to it, bring up because what we're doing right now isn't working. Well, it's not helping anyone. So, and and we we have a we have a bigger problem to deal with with this diabetes epidemic. It's more important than climate change. Uh, I mean, it will affect us before climate change is even getting started on us. So, um, so what are the opportunities and risks for the ketogenic diet going forward? Well, you know. Um, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're socialized, you've got socialized medicine or antisocial medicine, we're still going to be bankrupted by diabetes. A ketogenic diet can reverse that. We've got plenty of good evidence, good quality mm-hmm. evidence to support that, um, which is great for an individual diabetic. For an individual diabetic, we can talk to you, tell you about what we've done, and hopefully you can make the cha- same changes in your life and you mm-hmm. can become non diabetic. Mm-hmm. That's awesome for you as an individual. But for our entire healthcare, it's necessary. It's good for the individual, necessary for our healthcare to be able to survive this, and it's necessary for our economies. And I think we need to work on our dietary standards bodies to accept a ketogenic diet within their framework, even if it's just even from a strictly financial uh, view, which should get everybody's attention. Yeah, yeah, I I would hope so. You know, um, except the drug companies. Well. Except the drug companies, but you know they can be legislated out of business. You know, if, if they're going to be truculent, they can be legislated out of business. This, this is not an issue that we can afford to let them get away with uh, right. with some of these things. So, um, you know, most drug companies are, are well-meaning. They put a billion dollars into funding to develop a, a, a treatment, and you know, nine times out of ten, it doesn't work, and they've wasted all that money. So, you know, we do need venture capitalists to do that kind of thing. Um, so we can't get by without a pharmaceutical industry, but um, their incentive, as Carl was saying before, is uh, is not aligned with uh, with 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 our, our yeah. needs. You know, and and so they there there does need to be some realignment of that. Amen. Um, uh, the other thing is we need to convince the only people in this debate for whom this is life or death, type two diabetics. Um, that the ketogenic diet is a treatment. And, you know, the, the, the problem is the universe is making type 2 diabetics at a horrifying pace. Um, the only way we can beat this is 
through geometric progression. We've spoken right. about it before. Tell two type 2 diabetics about keto, and when they thank you, ask them yeah. to find two more and and pay it forward. And soon you'll have four, then eight, then 16, then after 10 generations, you'll have 1,024 ex-diabetics, and after 20 generations, you'll have a million, and after 30 generations you'll have a trillion uh, that's how quickly that it grows so the universe cannot beat us its math is just not as good as ours so this is this is this is how we do what we do i mean we have to change diabetics at the ground floor and they will change the diabetes associations they will show, change the dietetics organizations they will change they will change the government um you know this is this is the only way to do it um i just want to finish finally about uh risks um, with the ketogenic diet. And one of the risks that I see is the diet being associated with uh, fringe yeah, conspiracy theories. Yeah, we've talked about this before, man. It's, it, it, it does tend to play into uh, the mindset that everybody uh, that everything conventional wisdom is wrong. And in this case, it is. But that doesn't mean that every yeah. other piece of conventional wisdom is also wrong or being you're, you're being misled. Right, in every other way. Right, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's this yeah. is all science based. I I had somebody on Facebook ask me uh, how could I possibly support vaccination when it's you know oh, right. every needle has got seven dead babies in it and you know it's just which that's some very small babies to fit in a needle. And they were like, I'm surprised somebody like you who embraces keto doesn't see the the correlation. Yeah, like that's I what they it. said to you, right? Well, I, I said to – I, I, I replied, formaldehyde's in yeah. an apple. <laughs> you know, there's mercury in an apple. There's yeah. arsenic in an apple. You know, it's in very small doses and very small doses in the, in the treatment. The thing that – what vaccinations do, vaccinations don't give you the disease. And that's one of the other things they say, you know, if I get a vaccination, I, I, if I get a flu vax, I always get the flu. You probably don't. You probably have an inflammation that is a cold. Uh, that you know you have a yeah, that causes a an infection that's a, that a bacterial infection that's a cold. Yeah. Um. You you. But it's at a, such a low dose that your immune system identifies it, gets rid of it, and now your immune system is programmed to exactly. destroy it next time. It's, it's, it's kind of like if you're in a t if you're an old western town, and some some dude robs your bank. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to send a poster of that dude's face to all of the mm. neighbouring towns, and then when that dude comes into town, the sheriff's going to say, wait a minute, <laughs> I saw your face. Uh, and the the quicker the sheriff can get him, the less chance yeah. the bank's going to get robbed. So it's kind of the, like that way with vaccinations. A vaccine is simply um, a heads up to your immune system saying, hey, this is, this is what the culprit looks like. Uh, get ready for it, you know. Have a look at this, and when it when you next see it, get ready to act. And it means that the immune system doesn't have to have to um, build it build its um, its immunity from scratch. It means it's got a heads up. So, um, you know, the, the thing is, the same quality of evidence that supports the ketogenic diets also supports the benefit of vaccine therapy. Right. You know. So, um, you know, and 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 uh, the fact that the Earth is not flat, and the fact that climate change is happening, and, and measles that, are coming you know, back, uh, or is, is something we need to look at. Well, absolutely, With perfect a example. Um, uh, in in two thousand and eighteen, in Samoa, two kids died after being being given the measles vaccine. 
And you know what that's going to do with all the, to all the anti-vaxxers? Robert F. Kennedy Jr. showed up and all, anti-vaxxers migrated to, to Samoa to, 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 to work, to basically campaign against measles vaccination because look at these yeah. two kids who were killed. And that is very powerful. I mean, dead children is powerful. It should be powerful. It should right. get our attention. And so their vaccination rate went from 90% to 31% in Samoa. Wow. Um, now, um, many nations in the Pacific currently have a measles epidemic. and We have it in Australia as well. The US has it. I mean, uh, measles epidemic. Philippines had a horrible epidemic earlier this year. If you take the nearest country to Samoa, which is US Samoa, so it's so near it's also called Samoa, <laughs> okay, their vaccination rate is 95%. And there's an app that I'm going to link, uh, link to you in the uh, show notes called the... Um, the herd simulator, the herd yeah. immunity simulator, and what you can do with this app is you can uh, you can set up Samoa and US Samoa. You can basically unclick the same as left uh, checkbox and say the immunization rate on the left. Let's call this US Samoa. So this is going to be ninety five percent. Which, by the way, you should mention that there have been no deaths to date. In US Samoa, yeah, and we'll see how that happens. So you set up ninety five percent on the on the on the left. That's going to be US Samoa and thirty one percent vaccination. So 0.95 on the left, 0.31 on the right. That's going to be Samoa, and uh, repopulate. And now you can see that Samoa has got lots of red dots. Those are the people who are unvaccinated, and US Samoa has lots of green dots, and those are the people who've been vaccinated. Near the border, click on a green dot. This is the person who's been vaccinated. And all of a sudden, you'll see that lots of people are starting to turn black. These are the people who are getting infected with the disease. And Samoa almost completely goes black. This is showing that it doesn't matter if you have a vaccination. It's not going to prevent you from getting the disease. It's just going to mean that you're infectious for not so not as long because your immune system has a heads up and it can can take on their disease you know it can identify it and neutralize it um the sad thing here is that people who who go out of their way to get themselves vaccinated for their community and their neighbors who don't those people are more at risk of getting the disease because their neighbors aren't vaccinated whether they took the vaccine or not it's only when you get enough space between unvaccinated people and some people just can't be vaccinated some people just have you know um, for a bunch of reasons so you know that this is the anti the anti-vax thing is 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 dangerous and when it gets associated with the ketogenic diet we end up getting sort of conflated and it becomes keto then becomes part of that woo like anti-vaxxing or fluoride or or what have you and uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, whatever your opinion on vaccination, and I think this is a debate we should have, um, don't let that be conflated with the benefits of ketogenic diet. Type 2 diabetics cannot afford to have their best chance at health impacted because it's seen as just another fringe subject right. like anti-vax. So, you know, if you want to talk about anti-vax, go into your own forums. Don't do it in the ketogenic forums. And anti-vax is just one of the woo topics that people <laughs> like to conflate with keto, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Another one is crystal therapy or, uh, you know, new other new age therapies. There's a famous podcast. I'm not going to mention the podcaster's name. Uh, I'm not in the, in the, in the business of, uh, of, of doing that, but 
Um, if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know the one I'm talking about. Um, and this podcast um, uh, podcaster started talking about uh, the fact that they were going to move to crystal therapy in addition to ketogenic diets as part of their keto diet podcast. The yeah. podcaster started out in the keto space. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you and know, now crystals are showing up. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the podcaster spoke about how to uh, cleanse your crystals with sage smoke. And, uh, I mean, all of this is unsupported by by, right. by evidence. It's, this is all placebo. You know, you have somebody wear, wear, wear a crystal and they feel better. That's a placebo effect that you're looking at. Um, so, you know, and they're talking about how to uh, cleanse them with sage and put them in a yoni egg and, and wear them vaginally and, you know, it's just... Sorry, Carrie, you're going to have to live with those uh, migraines. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I don't have a problem with whatever mysticism you feel is important in your life, but sticking your rose quartz egg up your hoo-ha <laughs> is not keto. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just isn't. Oh. Uh, you can, everybody can hear Carrie blushing right now. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Look, uh, the final thing is meat-only yeah. diets. Now, now, you know, I, I know a lot of people- Hang on a minute. Hang on. Placebo. Placebo. And I've been thinking about mm -hmm. this for- mm. I regularly think about mm -hmm. this. Does it matter if it's a placebo? If you get the end result, so the only do we th care? That's a very good question. And in order to find out, you have to do- That is an what? excellent question. Science. You have to do a test. So, you know, there, 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 is, there is an advantage in triggering the placebo effect, but what if instead of, instead of a, an uncomfortable insertion, you could say a prayer and that would have the same effect? Would that be a better thing? You don't have to go buy this rose crystal egg and, you know. Um, would that right. be a better I mean, thing? If, so, if, if crystal therapy in whatever form, makes someone feel better. A, does it matter that nothing actually happens? As, as I say, I mean, I don't care if, mm. if that works for people. I, I honestly don't care. I don't think it's keto, and that's my, that's my point. My point is that it's being okay. inflated so that, you know, people who are alternative and willing to consider keto are also alternative and conflating it with these other things, and so you have podcasts that are purport to be a ketogenic podcasts which which you know are an entire podcast on crystal therapy for example so we should do a, an episode on yeah, placebo I'm sure we can find some should. studies placebo and nocebo and we should have richard there <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> i'm a cynic no because i mean i, I do skeptic, i do so. just i think about the, i think about that a lot mm. about does it actually matter? I feel the same like way about, about about prayer. I mean, prayer or meditation mm -hmm. or whatever it is that that you want to do. Um, that um, there there is evidence that that it, helps it you that it works physically, and you know it that so so is that a bad thing? You know, there's if it's a placebo effect, you know, it's um, it is what it is. But in this case, I feel like people being told that they need to buy a particular brand of yoni egg and a particular kind of sage <laughs> to smoke it with and then particular crystals for so there's a you know there's a there's a there's a crystal for for headaches and there's a crystal for mondays <laughs> and there's a crystal for you know my I, my cat just scratched my face you know there's it, it, it's it, if it works for you yeah, we I'm, want it I'm to all work, for it but, right it, 
don't get it mixed. Don't get it mixed up with my keto because you know type two diabetics can't afford for keto to be uh, ketogenic diets to be considered uh, woo fads. There is great evidence back behind them. Uh, at, at, at another example, and this is almost keto. This is like it, it verges, it, it verges uh, reasonably into the ketogenic space, and this okay. is meat only diets, carnivore. Um, you know. I, I know a lot of people who I admire who always reference their claims who mm -hmm. found that meat-only diet works for them. And I don't think it's a placebo effect. I think the variability of the way humans work um, means that um, we all have different reactions to our environment. And uh, I know people who have good evidence that, that a meat-only diet is able to reduce some of their symptoms but it's not going to be for everybody and um you know we're animals the the the, the reasoning behind it is sound we're, we're animals and the most concentrated source of nutrients for growing animals is in the flesh of other animals we we don't have four stomachs uh, like a ruminant so we can't convert cellulose and grass into all of the essential nutrients we need but it's also clear from an evolutionary standpoint that we are made to eat both meat and vegetables we are we are omnivores that's right we're omnivores. We're 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 obligate omnivores. Um, you know, we may not have always been omnivores, but right, we are now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so I mean, the carnivore diet is just taking this whole thing to extreme. So by saying what well, there's a big difference between saying you can eat meat to mm. you can't eat anything but meat. You know, so so um, it, it's a fad. And I'm going to use my terms very carefully here, very much like paleo, which is not right. to say that it's not good, evidence supporting it, but it's not likely to be sufficient or necessary for most diabetics. And a good example is paleo made a lot of benefit claims like, you know, it'll help reverse your diabetes. But, you know, for type 2 diabetics, the lower end, the lower carb end of paleo mm -hmm. is where most of those benefits came from. You know, a, a type 2 dates. diabetic couldn't eat yeah. honey, quinoa and dates, for example, and and see the same benefits as they would if they're eating, you know, healthy fats and meat and vegetables, you know. So, um, uh, so an, another example is uh, is in, in milk. I mean, paleo diets, um, or dairy. you don't eat milk in a paleo diet um, or, or any dairy, yeah. And, you know, for people with a casein sensitivity in their gut or they have no lactose persistent, lactase persistence after weaning, so, you know, they don't, they're lactose intolerant, you know, the non-dairy part of, the paleo is where the benefits came from. All of the other yeah. things could have been quite optional, you know, but but that was where the benefit was. Um, and for those with leaky gut, grain restriction was where their benefits probably came from. Uh, generally, I, I, I agree with the, an evolutionary argument because anybody who ignores evolution is uh, any biologist who ignores evolution is is missing the missing the picture. Um, but you know uh, what we ate through our evolution, we adapted to, and those who survived probably had a good ad adaptation. So, yeah, there's a good chance that what we ate historically through our evolution is probably going to be better for us because we have adapted to eat it. But that uh, does that mean that eating what your Paleolithic ancestors ate would be good for everyone? I, I don't think it is. A paleo-diabetic, for example, you know, uh, that they're, they're going to keep getting sick. So it needs to be context contextual. Uh, it's, a tr it's a fact that there are anti-nutrients in plants, and for people with sensitivities, a meat and water diet is a great start. If you have sensitivities to like say nightshades or um you know other other uh, specific plants um then you know a meat only diet is going to is going to mm. you're going to see all your symptoms go away but but really if you really want to know what it is you're sensitive to you want to slowly add right. things back until you see and what what triggers the the disease so 
We recommend that to our friends and listeners anyway who find themselves either in a stall or it worked for a while and it doesn't work anymore. Mm. And, you know, just go back to to meat first. And then, of course, everything's going to improve, usually does. And then you yeah. then you slowly start adding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then you start because adding it, back things. Yeah, it's that, it's uh, highly dense nutrients. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm – yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of restricting things that don't harm you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I say get start, start with meat and then slowly add things back. It might be that yeah. you right. don't have to restrict nightshades. Maybe they're not a problem for you. And, you know, the vitamin C in peppers, for example, is, is – is, I, I love peppers in my diet because I – for one reason, it's a very high in vitamin C. And vitamin C, ascorbic acid, has so many advantages delicious. in the body. So, <laughs> um, you know, there's – they are. Delicious. They are delicious. So, you know, uh, if eating – I, I guess the final thing is, um, you know, if eating meat is the only way for you, yeah. then that's awesome. Go for it. But for most people, I think it's unnecessary. Um, I think it's an extreme diet with not a, with a, not a lot of large cohort controlled clinical evidence. It's, it's um, you know, the, I, I, I feel that the carnivore diet is a weight that the ketogenic doesn't have to support to be beneficial for okay. type 2 diabetics. And so, um, you know, I, th- I think we should separate what, what there's a lot of large cohort uh, clinical trials supporting and that we know can treat this um, tsunami yeah. of diabetes that's coming at us. And and the, the final thing I would say about the meat-only diets is that there seems to be this sort of um, fight between it can only be meat or it can only be vegetables, you know, the whole vegan thing. Vegan is, or vegetarianism is not anti-keto. Uh, I went vegetarian keto for, for a month for over October last year and then I went carnivore <laughs> for carnivember, you know. So n- both of those are possible to be keto. They're not necessarily keto. And so I think for a type 2 diabetic, if either of those is your preferred platform, the preferred way of eating, awesome. And, you know, if you're type 2 diabetic, my advice would be try to find the more ketogenic end of, of whatever it is you're eating in if it be it be it vegan or or carnivore or or what have you, so so that that's my rant. I think yeah. I've managed to annoy crystals everybody. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I think that um, the more restrictive it is, the more people will find it difficult to stick to. So that's why I'm not a fan of restricting things just because. Like, you know, if you need to be carnivore because that's where you get the best results, where you feel best, have at it. But but it is harder to stick to. And and it's socially, it's more difficult. It's difficult in a lot more ways. So if you don't need to be carnivore to get the results you want, then please don't restrict or, or stuff. Or more importantly, that does don't tell everybody do else that they harm. need to do it, right? I mean, the, the thing we always come back to is, does it right. work for you? Great. You need to test these yeah. things on right. yourself. And that's really what it's all yeah. about. That's our mantra, right? Absolutely. Test to thyself. I, I, I think – Yep. Exactly. I think fad diets are ones that, that, that come on in gangbusters and then disappear just as quickly. And I think the whole tell everybody that they have to be carnivore and it's this weird diet. It, it, you're not going to believe this works, but it works. That – causes the up spike and then what causes the down spike as carrie said is it's difficult to stick to restrictive diets you know well keto runs that danger too right because keto has become sort of in the fad diet uh 
zeitgeist, if you will. It's it's appearing yeah. on magazines at yeah, the checkout does. line, right? It, it it's getting lumped in, no right. matter if you're keto or vegan or paleo, right? Keto is like one of those things, and of course, it's just uh, you know if it's in that category, people look at it as just a weight loss thing. Well, I mean. But it's also for, I mean, there's also weak evidence that it might be good, might treat cancer. Mm-hmm. There's slightly stronger evidence that's going to treat um, uh, bipolarity. And, and and we've got perfect evidence of Carrie who yep. who was able to do that. We know lots, of, we have lots of friends yep. in the same situation. So, you know, we've seen any of ones that, that, that show us that the, the benefit of that. Um, but for, um, uh, I, I, I worry about uh, keto treating everything. Um, and you know, th- because it can get a reputation, then that can become that can be part of the part of the cross that's used to to nail us up on. So you know, so to take it down, yeah, yeah. But yeah, because then then if if you do keto and you still have an issue, then suddenly keto doesn't work, and then you know that's another snowball, right? Well, keto didn't work for me. Well, keto didn't work for me, and then keto doesn't work, right? Which is which it does. So. Yeah, exactly. I hear this. I hear this. I went keto for a couple of days and I didn't get any. I got sick, you know. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> I bet your LDL went up Well, too. anyway, it's been an hour and a half so far and I'm just thoroughly enjoying hanging out with you, Richard oh, and, I'm sorry. and Terry. Um, <laughs> but. I, I just want to apologize to Carrie for, for, for all of these yeah. assholes who... <laughs> Who uh, complain about the British accent? It. I mean, I'm going to come on next. We'll give time you your money speaking back. Speaking a British accent, How's that? just to screw them. <laughs> give you all your money back. Well, anyway, um, I want to know if either of you have a recipe to share. Well, I can always come up with something, but I just wonder if if, if it's long enough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to have a recipe on this show, you have to speak for at least 10 minutes. It's not all about size, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> huh? It's not all about size, Gary. It's not all, it's not all about length. <laughs> That's right. I will happily share a no, recipe no, if it's not too long. Okay. All right. So I am I am still in turkey yeah. mode because it's Christmas and I love turkey and we've still got turkey left or we've got more turkey coming or if you were smart you mm-hmm. went and stocked up on turkeys when they were $3 even though you may not need another one. I have another leftover turkey recipe for you and this is super quick nice. and super delicious. And I called it tarragon turkey with leeks. So it actually involves like all my favorite things in one dish. Yay. So you are going to need, and of course, we'll post the link up on the show notes. So if you're driving, don't write this down. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> you're going to need a tablespoon of coconut oil. You could also use avocado oil if that is your preference. You're going to need two large leeks, which you're going to thinly slice you're going to need seven ounces or 200 grams of uh, turkey, leftover turkey. You could also use, if you don't have any leftover turkey to hand, you could use the roast smoked turkey slices that you get in the deli, which you would just slice into thin strips. But um, this time of year, I am using 
leftover roast turkey. You're going to need four ounces or 110 grams of mushrooms. I use criminy mushrooms, but you can use white mushrooms too if that's what you have available. Half a cup or four fluid ounces of full fat Greek yogurt. Um, and for sure, depending on where you are, different on your keto, what works best for you. Some people use lower fat, but you definitely cannot use fat-free yogurt in this recipe because when you heat fat-free yogurt, it, it separates, it curdles, whereas the full fat does not. So wherever, whatever kind of yogurt you have for this recipe, make sure you use full fat. You're going to need a tablespoon of fresh tarragon, which you have chopped. You're going to need a quarter of a cup of Parmesan cheese, which has been grated and you're going to need an ounce or 28 grams of pine nuts. Um, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to heat your oil in a, in a skillet or a frying pan or whatever they call these things outside the U.S. now. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> you're going to add the sliced leeks and you're going to saute them, stirring frequently over medium heat for five minutes just until the leeks are softened. Then you are going to stir in your turkey your chopped turkey and sliced mushrooms and you're going to continue to saute just until the mushrooms and turkey are warmed through which is only about three minutes you're going to stir in the chopped tarragon and the yogurt and you're going to turn that mixture into a casserole dish then you're going to sprinkle the parmesan cheese and the pine nuts evenly over the top of your turkey casserole you're going to place it under a hot broiler also known as a grill mm -hmm. outside of the US, yep. until the pine nuts turn golden brown. And my advice here is don't walk away because you'll end up with burnt nuts and no, <laughs> no one anywhere <laughs> likes burnt nuts. <clears throat> and that was really just to counteract Mr. Morris's um, rose quartz shoved up your hoo-ha. <laughs> I want that as my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that's a under 10 minute recipe it's super delicious um it involves most of my favorite things and um and you can whip it whip, whip it up tonight especially if you have some roast turkey still left over from thanksgiving nice so i've got a recipe this is a quick one it's from my book actually the recipe itself takes two hours so it's not a quick one oh, but the recipe it's quick to it's, relate, it's a though. quick one to describe so this is salt crusted pork belly oh salt and crusted anything yeah Yay. so so you actually don't eat the salt but you use the salt as a me method to cook it with so uh it takes about an hour and 40 minutes to cook it takes about 10 minutes to prep and you need about 10 minutes resting time so roughly two hours and this is going to make four servings and it's going to cost roughly 20 bucks wow what we're going to do we're, we're going to need an oven we're going to need an oven rack tray with a rack and we're going to need some aluminium okay. foil or aluminum foil <laughs> And so we're going to. Thanks for translating. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I I'll think I love you, Richard. For you. <laughs> Aluminium. So uh, you're going to take a uh, two pound or one kilogram pork belly. Yeah. Uh, try to get one that's got an even depth. So uh, you don't want one that's thicker at one end. And you don't really need one with a lot of meat on. You think when you look at pork belly in the store, you think, oh, I want one with meat on. No, you don't want. The, the, the bit that looks like fat. Right. Is not all fat. A lot of that is is mm -hmm. very fatty meat. So um, you're going to take. You're going to need six six cloves of garlic. You're going to need about a teaspoon of Chinese five spice. Mm. You're going to need about a cup of salt. 
and two cups of water. So uh, preheat your oven to 350 Fahrenheit or 180 Celsius. Um, we're going to spread a, the aluminium foil over the bottom of the tray and we're going to pour water into the base, into the tray and lay the rack over the top. So this is basically going to steam the bottom of the meat. The meat's going to, the, the pork belly's going to be skin side up and the downside is going to be steamed uh, essentially um, in the, in the, with the tray. So you're going to make six slits on the side of the pork just below the layer of fat, just under the skin, and you slide, the, the, slide those cloves of garlic in all the way. Um, you want to rub the flesh side of the pork with Chinese fire spice and place the pork on the rack skin side up, and then you pour on the salt in the middle of the, of the pork belly on the skin, and you spread the salt evenly across the skin with the back of a spoon. So you basically have a tray with water in it, you have a pork belly sitting on top of that, and then you have a layer of salt sitting on top of that. Okay. Cook for an hour. This is at a lower temperature. We're cooking it for an hour, and we're trying to cook the... Basically, we're trying to, to render some of the fat, but we're essentially cooking the meat, and uh, we're, not, we, we're trying to keep the skin dry as possible, and that's what the salt's for. The salt basically prevents that steam from from affecting the the the, the skin. So wow. um, so once you've the pork's going to shrink a little bit, and the salt layer will come away from the skin a bit. So it's going to appear like a little little uh, tray of salt on top. And so the next step, we're going to take it out. With, it's been in, it's been in the oven for an hour, and it's been steaming the bottom of the meat. Now we're going to take the salt off, and we're going to put the tray back in the oven. And now we're going to crank it. We're going to 240 Celsius or 465 Fahrenheit for 40 minutes, and that's to crisp up the skin into crackling. Nice. Um, and then once that's done, you take the pork out, leave it on the rack to rest for 10 minutes before cutting. Now the way I cut it is I put it put it skin side down on a chopping board and I get a cleaver and I chop it into one inch cubes and then just when you take off the salt do you also drain the water yes yes yeah you don't want the water at this point so yeah. um, because you, you you now you now want it hot and dry right. if, you, if there's a little bit of water in there it'll it'll evaporate really quickly at, 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 at that kind of temperature so I cut it into one inch cubes and then you know I might serve it with a little bit of coleslaw or something like that there is nothing as satiating for me it's true. as fatty pork belly. Uh, oh. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. With a crispy Very skin, crispy, crisp skin. Mm. So that's my recipe. And that'll be in my book, Fat Man Hungry, <laughs> fatmanhungry.com. <laughs> and I'll be, on, I'll be on in another episode to shill my book. But I'm Awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm a couple of chapters into it, so I'm still working on it. Richard, it's been such a delight to talk to you again. Good to chat with both of you. Yeah. Well, that's a show. So, of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you've found to support or refute anything we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. And come follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at twoketodudes. Add the hashtag twoketodudes to your posts and comments so we can find you. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's at forum.2keto.com. And you can have a look around without having to create an account by starting with success. 
www.2keto.com. Come and check out our Facebook group, The Keto Kitchen, where it's all about the food and the recipes to get the science of keto onto your plate. If you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, please consider making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Those pledging $20 or more per month have access to the exclusive Facebook group 2 Keto Dudes Gold. We also have a free Facebook fan page at fb.2keto.com, so go follow us there. And you can see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. Also, we have an Amazon affiliate store where you can buy your favorite keto ingredients and devices and help us out at the same time, and that's at amazon.2keto.com. We would love your help in building the most awesome keto community, and you can do that very easily by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how a lot of new people get to know about our keto community. Plus, you can help by planning on attending Keto Fest in the fall of 2020. In Houston. Because the community that is built there is absolutely incredible. And yes, 2020 will be in Houston in October. So just head to ketofest.com to get all the latest information. And a caveat, it is not current ketofest.com. So right now we're still in the talks about how we're going to do it. But if you attend Low Carb Houston in 2020, that is essentially KetoFest 2020. So the, the branding hasn't taken shape yet, but that's it's going to be the same thing. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Okay, lovelies, keep calm and keto on. Keep calm and keto on, people. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, everybody. Yep, sure will. And we'll see you next time on Two, Two keto, keto Dudes. Three Keto Dudes. <laughs>